Father, what a fitting ending to the Gospel of John. Lord, help us to ask ourselves the question, how might you want us to lay our lives down? We see clearly that what it means to be a Christian isn't to only receive life from you, but it's to pour out our lives. Help us do that as a church. Give us clarity to know what you want from us, God. No matter how extreme or how ordinary, God, may we give our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. We have the privilege to finish the Gospel of John today. It's been 67 awesome weeks. It's rare that we get to um, go through an entire book like this um, and, and to see from beginning to end how Christ has been revealed um, and, and how he is Lord. It's, it's rare that we get to do something like this and, um, and not have a, a break or have another series in, in between it. So I appreciate your patience in sticking with us for 67 consecutive weeks. Um, and I pray that as you read the book of John, that you were able to agree with the thesis of the book, that Christ is Lord. And I pray that you don't just think that and believe that with your mind, but I pray that that has worked its way into an application into your life. That you've seen, these are ways that this Lord is calling me to submit and to live. And I pray that um, God has used this glorious gospel to allow you to submit to them. Many believe that chapter 21 was added on later by a different author than John. A lot of liberal scholars think that. They say that because chapter 20 was wrapped up so nicely with a thesis statement um, that the purpose of the book was so that um, you'd believe that, that Christ is God. Um, it was wrapped up so nicely in the previous chapter. They said, well, why would we want to add on anything extra? Um, but we know that's not the case. Um, this is written by John himself, and this works as a perfect epilogue to the book of John. We know this it fits in because there's some loose ends that are tied up. John himself says that it is my testimony, and my testimony is true. We have every reason to believe from um, textual criticism that this is also authored by John. So today, as we look at chapter 21, we will look at the thesis of the entire book of John, that Christ is Lord, and that we have life in his name. But then this chapter will force us to examine how might God want us to take the life he's given us, given us and lay it down for him and his glory. So I look forward to looking at that with you this morning. This is the big idea that Jesus Christ, he gives us life so that we can lay it down. And this is demonstrated in three ways. First, we see that we are utterly empty and futile in our attempts, and yet Christ provides for us. Next, we'll look at how loveless and how fickle we are, and yet how Christ restores us and forgives us and causes us to be his servants. Lastly, we'll look and see how he commands us as a Lord to follow him, and he expects our relationship with him to be one as slaves. Now, before that hits your ear weird, stick with me. So you'll see um, that he calls us to be his glorious slaves. So first, what does it mean that um, we are empty and Christ provides? We see that in verses 1 through 14 here. That these disciples are expert fishermen. And they go out at night, which um, oftentimes is the best time to catch fish on the Sea of Galilee, to go back to their profession. Now, in the email I sent out, I asked the question, what is it, 
mean that they are fishing at this point in the gospel? Well, we know from Matthew 28, 16, that Jesus had clearly directed them, wait for me on top of a mountain. They were to be waiting for him. So the fact that they're not on top of a mountain, but instead going back to their boats, going back to the profession, going back to their livelihood, it reveals that these disciples said, Lord, I know you're calling me to do this heavy thing of, of taking your message and starting the church and all, but you know, we've never done this before. No one's ever really set an example for us. This sounds really hard. So we're going to go back to the life that we once knew, the life that we knew we could be experts at, that could feed us fish, make a profit, and maybe we can be Christians while being fishermen. You know, that's not wrong necessarily, is it? Well, it was wrong for them because that was not the life God called them to. They were being disobedient. And yet Christ is still gracious with them. Now, these are expert fishermen, right? They know the right spots to pick. They know the right nets. They know the time of day to go. And how many fish do they catch? Zero. Coincidence? Was it that Mother Nature blew some winds in a particular way that caused them to be unfruitful that evening? I think not. Because what happens when Jesus, who they don't recognize, they just see him as a man standing on the shore. What happens when this cloaked man says, hey, you out there, 100 yards away, a football field away, cast your net on the other side. What happens then? 153. The net is so full that they can't even pull the net into the boat. They have to drag the net along with them and, and just bring the boat into the shore. And so we know that it's a supernatural thing that Christ is revealing to them here that when you go against my call on your life, you will be fruitless. You will be fruitless. And that's not always the case, right? Sometimes we can live a life apart from God, and you can live a life denying God, and you can set up a successful, you can have a successful career. You might make a lot of money, you might make a lot of friends, you might in the world's eyes look like a success. But we know that what matters is not what is true in the world's eyes, but what's true in God's eyes. And while you might be fruitful by the world's standards, you will be, you'll have a meaningless life, that you have nothing to show for in the end if you live a life apart from the calling of God. And so what, we're, what you and I are reminded here is that we are utterly empty as well. And when we try to follow our own calling and try to go against our maker, we're, our efforts are going to be futile. Now, I want to ask you, think about how has, how has this ever happened in your life? I know for me, I have many experiences. So think about little things. For me, I've lost my wedding ring before. And I would search and thought I could, if I could tore my house upside down, I could find it. But then I prayed, and God showed it to me right where it was in the grass. Now, it's not always the case, right? But it's the same thing with like a cold or, or a headache. Oftentimes, it's like, okay, give me the medicine right away. But no, like sometimes if you pray, God says, no, there's a spiritual realm to this, and you need to submit to me. So there's little things, right, that we've experienced that we need to submit to God in. There's bigger things, right? Career is one that is in the forefront of my mind. I just got laid off in August, as many of you know. And I think I told some people that if it were up to me, I would be still working at Cisco. I'm stubborn like that. I'd have my head down at my computer, and I'd go for another decade maybe. And that wouldn't necessarily be, be wrong, but would it be following God's call in my life? I think not. I think that I've received enough confirmation that God wants me to do something else. And so I have the opportunity to start seminary and to, to be a pastor full-time. And so I'm so thankful that he did that. But if were I to disregard that and just keep my head down 
it may not have looked sinful from the outside, but it would have been. And God said, nope, you're as hard as you want to try it, Cisco. You might be the boss's favorite employee, and yet I'm going to cause you to be laid off because that's not my plan for you. Your earthly ministry is going to be fruitless, and I'm going to dry up that well so that you have no place to turn but me. How has God done that in your life? How has he done that in your life? Think back, and I hope he has. Most importantly, other than those things, the biggest thing that we do is we try to relate to God in a way that goes along with what we think. So relating to him with religion rather than the gospel, I think, is the most damning way that we do this. Rather than admitting that we're futile and that we cannot do this Christianity thing by ourselves, we try to. We try to put on the the church clothes. We try to do the church thing and look nice and try to please God with our own works, whether that be giving of time or money um, or whether that even be reading our Bible. It It can actually look Christian. And yet when we do it on our own terms, when we do it out of our own power and strength and do it for our own glory, it's ultimately fruitless and futile. So I want you to first see that before Christ can give you life for you to lay down that life, it starts with the recognition that I need life in the first place. That on my own, like the disciples, I'm a, I'm a worthless, fruitless fisherman. And it's until I submit to his call, that is when I will be blessed. Prosperity, money, material-wise, sometimes, but most of the time probably not. What we're talking about here is a spiritual blessing, and we see that in verses 6, 12, and 13. If we, if, if we continue on in the passage, we see in verse 6, it says, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And then verses 20, um, 20, or, sorry, 11 through 13 as well, We see, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them with the fish. So notice the quantity of fish, um, and that Jesus was absolutely in control of directing that school right into that net. Do you think Jesus can do the same in your life with your circumstances? He can. Jesus can direct the hardest heart, maybe someone you know, a family member, a friend who's not saved, and he can breathe life into that heart and make them alive. Jesus can take the most difficult, trying experience, I'd say, at your job with the hardest boss, and he can soften that boss, or he can change your circumstances. Jesus can rise up nations, and he can, can tear nations down. He can put in rulers, and he can throw out rulers. We see here that Jesus is in absolute control over nature. And in Colossians 1.17, it says that he upholds nature by the word of his power. He is in absolute control. Now, it's one thing to be a good Calvinist and say, I believe that. It's another to have a practical providence that makes its way into your everyday life, that causes you never to worry, never to fear, never to despair, But to look at the most difficult situations in your life that you might be going through and say, you know, God's God's orchestrating this and he's going to provide the means to get me out of this, to solve this. And maybe the problem won't be solved like, like we said last week, but he has a greater blessing for me and that's his presence. We have huge parallels between this account and in Luke 5. In Luke 5 is when he initially called the disciples, specifically Peter, and we see so many parallels that there has to be a a tying in meaning to that. So in Luke 5, Peter uh, 
had so many fish that it sank the boats that they were on. And when Peter saw Jesus, he said, woe is me. He couldn't even look upon Christ. He knew that he was a filthy man in light of the Savior. And, though, so, and even though he realized that he was not worthy of God, God still called him to be a fisher of men. He said, I will make you fishers of men. So here again, we have this passage at the very end of the gospel. And what, so what he's doing here is he's saying, you are still fishers of men. Don't think that you could go back to fishing for fish as your profession. You need to remember that I, have not only, I will not only be with you when I'm here on earth, but now that I'm resurrected and now that I'm walking amongst you, you've got to keep doing this. You've got to be persistent in this calling, and you can't give it up just because I'm not with you anymore. You've got to continue to keep going. Notice how Christ here, he, this is one of my favorite parts of this passage, is that he invites them to come and eat breakfast with him. Christ isn't about pomp and circumstance. He doesn't put on this, this fancy robe and jingle bells and have smoke. No, Christ isn't about to, to do something fancy here and religious like we think he might. But Christ says, come have breakfast with me. He starts a fire. He, he feeds them bread and fish. I love how Christ is about real life, and he's so inconspicuous, right? Christ meets you in your everyday real life. He gets his hands dirty, and he can help you in whatever mundane circumstances, whether that be changing diapers or, or doing your taxes, that you need help with. That he's not about pomp and circumstance, and I love that about our Lord. And by offering them food, he's not just saying, here, fill your stomachs, but he's offering them uh, to the, for their souls to be filled as well. As we, as good Baptists know, we eat after, and that time is not just to say, oh, well, I'm going to eat and run, but the time is to be a spiritual time where this worship is extended, and we continue to have fellowship with one another, and this is what Christ is doing with them. He's having, having fellowship with them, and it's around the table. It's around food. It's in, it's in their real lives, and I love that about our Lord. He provides for them bread and fish. Now, those were staples in their diet, and at the sale. So it wouldn't have been weird for them to eat that with the Lord, but it would have also reminded them of when Christ multiplied bread and loaves and the feeding of the 5,000. So not only hauling in 153 fish would have been an amazing sight for them to see and remind that God is, is in control of everything, but having bread and fish, they would have remembered. And you know, there's a time that our Lord multiplica- uh, multiplied these things. And therefore, who are we to doubt his ability to use us to start the church, he can do anything, and they would have carried that on. I want to encourage you this morning to look at the Savior and say, this Savior is still alive, and he's still in your life, and he's still in my life. This is the same Savior that can multiply blessings. But what we need to realize, what I alluded to earlier, is that what he's offering you and me today isn't to take our net off one side of the boat that's fruitless and put it on the side that's filled with money bags and an easy, comfortable life. He's not saying that. But what Christ is calling for you and I to do this morning is to be his followers and to have life in his name, as the end of chapter 20 said, which is the whole purpose of the book, to see him as Lord and to find life in his name. That's what he wants for you this morning. So what blessings does he offer you and I? What blessings does he offer his church today? That's the blessings of himself. Himself. And when you get that, that Christ is my portion, that God is my shepherd and I shall not want, as Psalm 23 famously says, 
then you won't want for anything. You'll say, God is my shepherd. What else do I need? He is all-sufficient. Yes, this situation at work, yes, this situation at home, yes, this situation in my marriage might be a disaster right now, but the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He is my portion. I have God. What else do I need? And his presence is that blessing that our soul craves and longs for. When, when we get that, when we realize that our nets are full, then we are free to lay our lives down. We are free to say, you know, God, I don't know what you're doing if you're ever going to solve this problem in my life right now, but you're good. And I know one day you will solve it when I meet you in heaven or you come back and get me. But until then, I'm going to keep my eyes on you and trust that there's life in your name. The perfect illustration for this is a negative one. Remember the book of Jonah? He does the exact opposite of this. He says, God, there's a spiritual call in my life. I'm going to try to turn the knobs on my, on my material circumstances, run away from you. Obviously, God stops him short, causes him to be vomited out preaches to Nineveh, the whole town repents, a glorious thing, and what happens at the end of the book? God sends a plant to provide shade for him, and in Jonah, just after seeing so many souls saved from the flames of hell, doing his job as a prophet, Jonah says, oh, I get to finally relax because there's shade. There's a little temporary relief. I get to sweat a little less, and then what does God do? God sends a worm and causes that worm to eat that plant, and take away the shade. And then what's Jonah's response? I'm angry. Oh, how dare you, God? And then the book ends. The book ends. So can I make it this simple? Don't be like Jonah. <laughs> don't be like Jonah. Is that oversimplifying this? I don't think so. Do not look at your circumstances, the material circumstances, and find your joy, find your peace in them, but keep your eyes on the Lord. Be thankful for the, for the spiritual ways he's blessed you. The fact that he's saved you and you're here is an amazing blessing. Look for evidences of grace in your life. Thank him that you're able to wake up in the morning. Thank him for any movement or anything you see in any of the lives around you. And keep trusting him to provide. So I want to encourage you to that end. That you realize that you are empty and Christ supplies. So now that we realize that Christ does give us life and give it fully and abundantly, and I, I pray you agree with me, he asks us to now lay our lives down and give it up for his glory and not ours, which is much easier said than done. We see this in the life of Peter. In verses 15 through 19, we have the famous passage of Jesus coming to Peter and restoring him, asking him three times, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I do love you. And what does Christ say? He says, feed my sheep or tend my lambs. Three times. Now, it doesn't take rocket science to realize that he did that three times to perfectly match and restore his three denials in John 18 that we saw. We saw that Peter grievously denied his Lord three times, even though he was saved a believer, he denied his Lord three times. And because that was a public denial, Christ needed to publicly restore him. And he did this in the presence of the disciples. And he did this because he wanted to use Peter, a broken vessel, to be one of the leaders of the early church. And so for you and I, we look at this and we say, how am I like Peter? Christ comes to you this morning, he asks you the very same question. Do you love me? Now what we don't get 
from this passage, what we look over oftentimes is that this isn't just a simple repetition three times, but there's little nuances in, in the phraseology that Christ uses that actually give us much more meaning. For one, he refers to Peter as Simon, son of John. When the disciples got saved, God gave them new names when he commissioned them. So we know that Peter was first Simon. So the new name is like your new identity in Christ. So it's significant that here a Christ is calling him Simon, not Peter. By calling him Simon, he's convicting Peter and saying, I'm going to relate to you as and remind you that you were once a different person apart from me. And the way you were acting when you denied me was carnal. It was fleshly. It was like your old self, not new. So he refers to him as Simon to, to humble him, to remind him that who he was before Christ. Another thing that we might miss and look over is that when he says, do you love me, feed my sheep, the first two times he says, do you love me, he uses the word agape, which many of us know is a sacrificial love. It's a Christian love. It's the highest form of love. It's laying down your life for one. So Christ is asking him, do you agape me? And Peter, in his response the first two times, says, yes, Lord, I philos you. Philos, as we know, is from the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It is a brotherly affection, which is to love someone, but it's a different type of love. And so the first two times Peter responds to Christ, he says, yes, I love you, but he doesn't want to agree with, and he realizes that he cannot love Christ the same way Christ is asking him to love him. He says, he's admitting humbly, and it's almost, it's, it grieves him in a way to say, Lord, I know that I, I don't, my love for you doesn't match the love you want me to love, that, that you love me with, and that you expect for me to love you for you expect for me to love you. So he says, I love you, but it's with just brotherly affection. And then the third time he says, do you love me? Christ doesn't say, do you agape me? But he brings it down to his level and says, do you philos me? Do you even love me with brotherly affection? If you don't love me here, then at least do you love me here, Peter? And Peter says, yes, I love you with brotherly affection. So this is equally humbling for Peter but notice that he's not doing this just to, to rub dirt in Peter's face and to make him feel shamed. He's doing this to restore him. If that's all he said, then we might be like, oh, you know, stinks for Peter, and what hope do I have? But no, after each time he asks that and calls into question his love, he simultaneously says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. So by t giving him a command to do something, what he's telling Peter and what he tells you and I is that, no, I'm going to use you, and by me telling you to do my will, you are restored. You can be a, a humble servant in my hands, and even though your love has fallen short, and even though you've sinned, my grace will cover that, and I will use you to be a minister of the gospel for me. And so he tells him to feed his sheep, which in the direct application is for, for Peter to be a pastor, and for him to minister with the word of God, that's the type of feeding we need, is, is we need to be fed from the word. So for me, as a pastor, I get to apply this, these verses directly to my life and hear God's command saying, Kurt, feed my sheep. By God's grace, I get to do that this morning. Not perfectly, but faithfully the rest of my life. That is my, that is my intention, that's my goal. And Lord willing, he'll keep me on this calling even though I fail him. For you, if maybe you're, if you're not a pastor, 
you can still draw much application from this as well. Christ says to you, do you love me? And I want you to think about that for a second. Do you love him with agape love? Do you love him with agape love? You should be humbled as well. Because our love for Christ can never live up to the love he has for us. We always fall short. And we should be humbled just like Peter was. And yet God is still calling you to do his work and to do his will. God still says, there's work for you to do in my kingdom. And while he, he's not saying that you're all supposed to be pastors, he's saying, and we see here in a second, follow your calling. Discern your calling in life. Discern what I want you to do and do that. So that is how you can apply it to yourself. Love is proved by action. So instead of Peter trying to convince Christ that he loves him, Christ says, do this. And through doing, you'll show that you've really gotten it. You'll, show, you'll prove by your action that you love me. In Acts, we see that Peter did that. Peter preached a phenomenal sermon in Acts chapter 2 by the power of the Spirit. And we saw from the reading earlier that 3,000 were added to the number that day. Not because of Peter's greatness, but because he was used of God. We are encouraged that even though we have messed up lives, and even though we're still struggling with sin, we don't have to wait till we're clean to be used of God, but we can be used today. Verses 18 and 19, here in this passage, if you look at with me, <clears throat> he reminds Peter that if you're going to feed my sheep, if you're going to follow me, if you want to be a sold-out Christian, it's not going to be easy. He says, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted, but whenever you're old, someone's going to grab you and take you and carry you, and you're going to be stretched out, and you're going to die a glorious death. So in the same breath that he questions Peter's love and he commissions him to be a pastor, he says, but it's going to cost you something. And this falls in line with, with the rest of this passage and with the whole gospel of John, that we have life in the name of Christ. And what do we do with that life? We lay it down. And he's saying to Peter, you specifically, I'm calling you to lay it down physically. I'm asking for your life to be mine. And you will be persecuted. You will die for my namesake. We can't brush by this, brothers and sisters. I know we feel safe in America. I know we feel safe within these walls. But you, when you read this passage, you need to very much ask yourself, Am I ready to die for Christ? If I actually counted the cost, have I said, I'm going to pick up my cross and follow him daily? I know many of you may have been worried that Hillary got elected. I, may, maybe, and, and, and I don't know if Trump's much better. The reality is that persecution will come to this nation more than we see it right now. It will happen the religious majority that maybe you thought you had or, or maybe you thought was in the common grace, and there is some, that's eroding. That's eroding before our eyes. I think we all see it. There may be a day when truth is no longer tolerated, and you may very well be asked to die for the Savior. We just watched a video on Wednesday about missions overseas. Talk about calling. If you look at the, such the great need there is in the world today, how many resources we have as Americans and how much need there is in countries that have never even heard the name of Jesus. 
God may very well be calling you to go there too and take the gospel. We have to, what it means to be a Christian just doesn't mean, mean being a moral person, going to church on Sunday, but it means living a radically devoted life that is full of life in Christ's name, that is full of grace and truth, and yet it's a life of saying, my life isn't my own anymore, it's yours. I cannot love my mom, my children, my job, myself. I cannot love my own life more than you, Lord. I have to love you more than life itself. Does that sound hard? If it does, it's because it is. You know how hard it is? It's impossible. You cannot do it on your own. We need the good news of the gospel for any of us to actually understand this for one, for two, live it out. What does the gospel say? How does the gospel equip and enable Peter to to say you're going to die for me soon and him not freak out about it and run away? And how does the gospel equip you and I to live for Christ in life and death? We need, saints, to know the gospel through and through. We need to have it be woven into who we are. The gospel is our hope because the world says exalt yourself, preserve your life, be as safe as possible, and avoid all shame. The world says exalt yourself, have people look at you and be proud of you, preserve your life, don't do anything too dangerous, and avoid shame. Better not bring up Christ at the Thanksgiving table. Better not stand up for him at work. Avoid shame. That's what the world tells you. We need the gospel saints to remind us that King Jesus humbled himself, gave his life freely, and despised shame set before him. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and despised its shame. Because King Jesus went on the Calvary Road to a cross rather than a throne, because he said, I will lay my life down, even though I'm a king and I deserve a throne, I'm going to take the cross, I'm going to die for you to take all your sin upon my shoulders, and I'm going to be crucified in the hands of sinless men. I can call angels right now to rescue me, but I'm not going to. Because I love you, and I love you more. And because King Jesus does that, and he dies on a sinner's cross. He's able to forgive you for your lovelessness as he forgave Peter. And he's able to question your love and then commission you to do his will. Have you believed in the gospel? Are you still operating off of a works-based righteousness? Are you trying to please God with your own, your own goodness? Stop it. It won't work. Trust in Christ alone. When you stand before God, it will only be his covering that makes you clean. You cannot clean yourself off. And I know you've heard this before, saints, but continue to probe, continue to examine. Hear Christ's voice saying to you, do you love me? And I pray that he shows you and reveals to the ways that you've fallen short so that he may restore you and heal you and equip you to lay down your life for him. Death comes in a variety of ways. We're all called to die for Christ. Some of you may die physically. Some of you may be called to be persecuted for Christ. All of us are called to die to self. And sometimes what's even harder than dying for Christ and being martyred is living for him on a day-to-day basis in the midst of hard persecution. So there will be, what, what it means to follow Christ is that there will be death to relationships 
Remember, Christ says that I came not to bring peace, but the sword. That there will be family members who will go against each other. There may be death to hobbies and activities and things that you used to cling to and love. There may be death to your very self. The, the you you used to love and know, God is asking for that. And he says, I'm worth it. And what I want to give you, who you are in me, is much more valuable, is much more precious. And that is the message of the gospel. It's the message of Christianity in the book of John, as we saw. It's to find life in his name rather than finding life in yourself and saying, God, wherever you would send me, whatever you would have me do, my life is not my own, it's yours. Help me to count the cost and see that you're worth it. Send me wherever you want. Which leads us to our last point. We're to relate to Christ as slaves because he's Lord. We're to relate to him as slaves because he's Lord. Laying down our lives for Christ and submitting to him, while that sounds to our ears as wrong and oppressive and not fun, laying down our lives, as we've seen in the life of Peter, as we've seen through the whole Gospel of John, is paradoxically life-giving. It's when we lay down our lives that we, are, we receive life from the Savior. Now before we go on, I want to read a quote to you from John MacArthur's book, Slave. He thinks, and I agree with him, that recovering this biblical terminology is important. Listen to this quote. Our slavery to Christ has radical implications for how we think and live. We have been bought with a price. We belong to Christ. We are part of a people for his own possession. True Christianity, listen, is not about adding Jesus to my life. Instead, it is about devoting myself completely to him, submitting wholly to his will and seeking to please him above all else. It demands dying to self and following the master, no matter the cost. In other words, to be a Christian is to be Christ's slave. Do you agree with that this morning? Don't let the atrocity that happened in America during the Civil War era throw you off on this term. That was wrong and that was atrocious. Don't let that throw you off. Recover what the biblical notion of a slave is, that you are to be sold out for God. You are to listen to his commands and to follow him wherever he might call you. We, like Peter, are not content with Christ's commands. Read verse 21 here with me. We're not content with his commands. When Peter saw him, that's John, the writer of this gospel, when he saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? In verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Commentators debate here whether Peter was jealous of John, thinking that John would live a life that doesn't have persecution in it, or whether Peter was genuinely concerned for John as well, who he had a close friendship with, and he said, Lord, if you're calling me to die, what about him? Is he going to be called to die too? And he has genuine concern. The text doesn't tell us, but either way, what we know from this is that Peter was not simply satisfied in his Lord's calling on his life. God gave him very specific instructions to follow me, 
and he told him what would happen to him. And rather than just simply saying, yes, Lord, he said, what about that guy? What about him? Now, you listening to the sermon right now, you might be doing the very same thing. I know I'm guilty of this. When I hear a good sermon, and I'm not saying that this is good, but when you hear a sermon, I'm like, oh, man, my, you know, this person I know really needs to hear this. Or, um, man, this person, they're, they're just going off the deep end right now, and they need, they need to be corrected by God. And just thinking about everyone else and not applying it to myself. Are you content with the Lord saying, follow me? How much of your time is spent looking at social media, watching the news, looking at other people in the church and saying, how do I stack up? How much pride can I find in being better than those people who, they're a mess. (laughs) Do I feel despair when I see this brother stepping up, serving in new ways, looking like God's really sanctifying them and feeling discouraged that, you know, God, God must love them more than me. What Christ says to Peter here is so important for us to hear. Follow me. Simply follow me. I have a unique fo- call for you, Peter. And he says that to each one of you. I have a unique call for you. I'm your master. Don't worry about other people. Stay in your lane. Run the race that I have given you to run. Don't draw your significance, your worth, your identity, your value from your brothers and sisters or from non-believers. That's a futile exercise. It'll never satisfy, and you'll, you'll end up just um, at the end of your life saying, I spent way too much time caring what people think of me. And you'll realize it was wasted. I've heard uh, a saying before, and I like the saying, that comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. I agree with that. But I would go one step further and say, comparison is subtle disobedience. When Christ has called you to do something, and you, like Peter, look around and say, you know, I know I should be, relate to this master as a slave, and I should just do my job. When we say, well, what about him and her? It's saying, God, I, you know, I'm not truly satisfied in in what you would have for me. Let's protect ourselves against that, shall we? Let's look directly at our Savior, and let's say, God, how are you calling me to follow you? Now, this might be in ordinary ways, and this might be in extreme ways, but how do we know? How do you and I know our calling? So if the the drumbeat of this sermon is lay down your life, he gives you life, lay it down, what does it mean? Does it mean Pastor Kurt's calling each one of you to be missionaries? To all of you to go overseas? No. The way you understand your calling is multifaceted. One, objectively, you are called to obey the totality of Scripture. So I can tell you what your calling is. It's to glorify God. Now, how does that specifically work, at, work itself out and look in your life? Well, there will be some variance there. There's some subjectivity. So you need to ask yourself a few things. How has God gifted me? He promises to gift each one of you if you're saved. What desires has he given you? Where do you see the needs in the church, local and global, and how can you fit, meet those needs? What experiences has he given you to bless others? You won't hear God's voice speak to you and say, Kirk, I want you to do this specifically. But we must all do the work of being in community and figuring out what is the unique calling God has on my life and then running after that calling as hard as we can. Even if it might not look spiritual in the outset, there's a way to glorify God in every task that we do as a Christian. I pray that 
you from this sermon see how much life Christ can fill you with, that, that by obeying him, being satisfied in his presence, you can be equipped to, to do amazing things, and not because you're amazing, but because he can work through you. That through you, he can, ca- he can cause 153 fish to fill up that net, and he will continue to provide, and that he's also asking you to lay your life down. In the end of this gospel here in verse 21, John says his testimony is true. Truth sets us free, amen? Truth also binds us. Truth binds you to obey it, and truth also sets you free. You're a slave to something, brothers and sisters. Don't be a slave to this world. Don't be a slave to money. Don't be a slave to people's opinions. Be a slave of Christ, and you'll never be freer in your life, amen? Last questions. We watched a video on Wednesday, Insanity of God. If you weren't able, able to make it, I really encourage you to watch the Insanity of God. Nip, Nick Ripkin. They pose the question, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? And a lot of us say, oh, of course he's worth it. But what if he's calling you to go into a dangerous place? And what if he's calling you to, to possibly even put your, your wife or your husband, your children in danger's way. We saw in the movie that we see from scripture that we must love the Lord more than our life itself. We must love him and his love, the love that we have for him should look like hate in comparison to all those we, we have in life. The toughest man that, that the guy in the movie came across was not willing to bring his wife and his children alongside him. And yet through the conversation, God broke his heart and cause them to see that, you know, even if God takes them, even if God decides that they should be persecuted, that is most glorious. And in that, he, he received life, and tears of joy came over him. I pray the same is for you, that there is nothing, whether it be family, friends, that you hold on to that is more dear to you than Christ himself. Ask yourself, today, do I love Christ? See that you don't, see that he loves you, and that through the gospel you can follow him. Ask him, God, reveal to me what unique calling you might have in my life and run after it hard. If you do so, your nets will overflow with spiritual blessing. That's his presence, not prosperity necessarily, his presence, that your nets will overflow and you will have no choice but to go wherever he might send you. Let's follow him as a church. Let's follow him wholeheartedly. There's so much work to do in our neighborhood. There's so much work to do in your guys' families. There's so much work to do in our own hearts. Let's give up our lives. Are you with me? Are you with me? Let's do it. Let's pray. Mm, Gracious God, thank you for getting us through this whole gospel of John. Lord, help us to see as we reread it and study it, that there is abundant life in your name. Help us to see you, Christ, as Lord. Know that we are your slaves, and we don't need to look around, but we can simply obey you. But even more than slaves, I thank you that our relationship is multifaceted, that you are also our father and our friend, and that you love us and we have a love for you. Cause our love for you to overflow and spill out of our lives onto those around us. Help us to... Lay aside all of the idols and all of the things that we've found more precious than you. Open our eyes spiritually to see you for your beauty. And bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.